Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Mary Sin. I'm going to sit on your face, but don't make it weird. (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just want to give a little shout out to our latest Patreon patrons who are giving us $25 or more per month. Benedict Watley and Tessa Violet, thank you so much to both of you. Listen, if you're thinking of becoming a patron of ours at Patreon, you can give $1 per month or $3 or 5 or, you know, any amount you choose. If you do give $5 or more per month, you will have access to our entire archives going all the way back to October 6th of 2009. The first 55 episodes of Risk from way back when have been remastered and, you know, the ads have been removed. A lot of people don't realize there are 425 episodes of Risk. It, you know, your podcast player might only show you the latest 100 or 200 or 300. Also, if you give $10 per month, you can have access to brand new episodes each week with the ads removed. Plus, all kinds of bonus stories and check-ins and behind-the-scenes videos and songs and whatnot. There's so much to find at our Patreon, and it really does help. I, I mean, we really do need the assistance of our fans to help keep this big machine running. So go to patreon.com slash risk and become a patron of ours today. Or if you're already a patron, maybe up the amount you're giving a little bit if you can. I'm going to be recording a song basically thanking all of our Patreon patrons sometime this week. So look for that. It's coming. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is uh who is this this is chris joss behind me now and we are calling this week's episode uncovering stories where something lied beneath and then there were stones that were turned but nobody spared the horses all right that last one was just a random other thing people sometimes say. In a little bit, we are going to hear once again from Calco, who was first on the show, I don't know how many years ago, but it's great to have him back. But before that, we're going to hear for the first time ever from Mary Sin, that's C-Y-N, who you can find at MissMarySin.com. Here she is now at a recent... Risk Live show at Caveat in New York City. I don't remember exactly when. We had some recording issues on this one, but you can still hear Mary and the story's fantastic. Here's Mary Sin now with a story we call Sweater Love. (laughs) 
so I think the two big things uh, that you need to know to really have an idea of who I am is one that I love weirdos like those are my people that is what I've grown up in and also I'm a sex nerd um, and to give you an idea of what that means uh, in college I took a class called sexual diversity in society and even my parents were like couldn't can you like teach that? <laughs> kind of a gimme class for you. Um, and I maybe couldn't teach it, but I'd be a really good PA. Uh, <laughs> because um, anything we talked about, I had some kind of firsthand experience of. So, uh, you know, we'd be talking about like trans people. I'd be like, well, when my dad became a woman, um, and we'd talk about like sex work. And I'd be like, well, when I was a phone sex worker last summer, um, and we were talking about body modifications for some reason, and my teacher brought up like amputation fetishes, and the, the other students were like, that's not a thing. And I was like, no, I'm friends with one. <laughs> I'm kidding. He was more of a friend of a friend. Um, so when I became a dominatrix, literally no one was surprised, like even a tiny bit. Um, and I was so happy because I just got to be surrounded by weirdos, not just the clients, but the people I worked with were also complete weirdos. Um, one of them was a former debutante who every week came in with a new story about like a fight she'd gotten into at Mars Bar. Um, and another one was a Russian performance artist who recently became famous for letting Usher charge his phone in her vagina. <laughs> Seriously. Um, so I was always up for something new and fun and bizarre. So uh, when our phone girl said, do you do sweater fetish? I was like, I don't know what that is, but yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I made sure that it was something I could actually do. He was going to bring the sweaters. Sweater was not slang for anything else. It was just a square sweater. Um, and a lot of being a dom, a professional dom, is, uh, is just giving it the old college try. <laughs> like, there's no way to prepare for absolutely everything. You just have to, like, be on your toes and be like, yes, I can. Uh, sure, you want to pretend I'm a pirate queen? Great, that sounds fun. Um, you want me to find you in the female supremacist library? And sure, I'll fuck you up the ass while you read Andrea Dworkin. Awesome. <laughs> I really loved that session. <laughs> um, so, and also this was a fetishist, and fetishists usually really know what they want. It's not like someone that I'm gonna come in and they're like, dominate me, which, what, what does that even mean? It means so many things. Um, but fetishists are like, I want this, this, and this. I want you to be kneeling so that your ass is right next to your feet, and I want you to be facing away from me so I can look at your feet and your ass and jerk off at the same time. Boom, done, easy session. Um, so I figure this shouldn't be too hard. Something with sweaters, sure. We'll figure out how that's sexy. Um, so I get up in my, my dom gear and my sexy hair and makeup, and I walk in with all my attitude and say hello. And he does not care. He does not like <laughs> register sexiness at all. He's just like, oh, great. Hi, good to meet you. Uh, looking forward to working with you. Um, uh, here, uh, I'd like you to wear this. So he just gives me a bag um, with some clothes, and I go back to the office to get changed. And I put on... Um, 
like an Angora butter yellow sweater, like high necked down to my ankle or, or down to my wrists, and something I've never seen before or since, a full length sweater skirt. <laughs> like, yeah, has anyone ever heard of that? No. Um, and I, I thought about this and I have a theory because all the sweaters he brought were in uh, bags from a nearby thrift store and he mentioned being from out of town and also he was super cute so I wasn't really sure why he was going to a dominatrix in the first place. Um, but I think what happened was he was on a trip to New York, he was just, you know, in a thrift store strolling through the sweater aisle. Uh, and suddenly, like, the lights shone and the choirs started singing and there was the holy grail of his fetish gear. It was, like, giant, like, sweater that would just cover me from waist to ankle. And he was like, I need a dominatrix right now. <laughs> um, so I, I get dressed and I start walking out through the office and one of the other girls goes, so what is this, like grandma fetish? And I'm like, no, weirder. <laughs> so I walk in and he has also dressed up. Um, he's wearing a sweater, not a huge surprise there. Um, but he also has like a sweater on his legs. Like he's like put his legs through the armholes. And like the head hole is kind of like down around his junk. Um, and not what you're thinking. His junk was not coming out of the sweater. There were more sweaters in there. <laughs> around. So I've got, I've got a pretty clear idea of how this is supposed to go down. Um, so I'm, and he also likes tease and denial, and I'm a burlesque performer, so I can do that like all day. Um, so I'm like tying him up and playing with his nipples and like putting my boobs up against his face and just covering him with sweaters and like tying a sweater around his face. And he is happy as a pig in shit. I have never seen anyone so happy in my life. Cause like a fetish is like a sex button. A lot of people like you need, you need a drink and a nice dinner and some good conversation. But like fetishists, it's like, do you have a belly button? Cool, show it to me. Yes, into it. Um, so he's just like on cloud nine. And as we're going through this, I'm having a great time. He's like so into it that I'm really into it. And he's really cute. Like if you Google sexy nerd guy, you'd find someone who looks a lot like him. Um, and uh, we're having a great time. And then he's like, oh, I, I forgot to mention before, um, I'm really into public humiliation. And I'm like, yes! And I run back into the office and I'm like, guys, you have to see this because I need witnesses. And, uh, and like the public humiliation thing was pretty normal. You'd just be like on your computer or whatever. Someone would come back and be like, I need a couple people. And you'd walk in and be like, oh, ooh, look at the pervert, me, 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 uh, and leave. And so everyone's ready for that and they walk in and they all just kind of stop. <laughs> and they're like, oh, what, what do we have here? <laughs> Uh, oh, and they kind of got back into the swing of the, oh, look at the pervert, oh, hmm. what's going on? Uh, and then they leave again, uh, and we keep going. And he's so fucking happy. And he's also really into ass smothering. So I put him down on the floor, and I sit on his face, and like, normally ass smothering is a little weird, for me at least, because um, for a sex worker, I'm kind of prudish, like, 
I'm, I'm only a dom. If I'm sitting on your face, it's just to take away your breath with my ass. I don't want you to like try and pleasure me. And a lot of guys try and do that. So it's a weird proposition. Cause you're like, I'm going to sit on your face, but don't make it weird. Um, but like now we're in the world of sweaters and everything is kind of like cute and wholesome and there's like this much sweater between my ass and his face so I don't care what he's doing I'm just like yeah go wild buddy have a great time I can't even tell what you're doing and so he's like he's humping the air and I realize that this is how he gets off right like he just like moves and there's like enough sweater friction to you know do its thing so I'm like, I'm sitting on his face and calling him a pervert and like, and he's humping the air and then suddenly my boss walks in. <laughs> and this happens a lot more than you would think uh, at a dom house. Um, it's basically a French farce waiting to happen. You have a lot of closed doors and you don't know what's behind them all the time. Uh, so you get really good at just kind of opening the door and going, oh, whoops, and, and <laughs> silently closing the door again. And my boss, uh, he owns the dungeon. He's owned it for like five or six years at this point. Um, so he's really good at that. So he opens up the door and he stops. <laughs> <laughs> and is just frozen <laughs> by what he sees before him and is like trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> But I'm in the middle of a session and we're kind of building towards something. So uh, I just kind of wave and he like shakes himself out of it and closes the door and leaves. And luckily this guy has a face full of ass and sweater and my thighs are around his ears. So he doesn't know. He's, you know, going on and having a great time. And I just realized like, this is my life. I, I exist in this insane and wonderful, like random and infinite universe where anything can happen. And that's what I really love about being a Dom is that like, no matter how long you've been doing this, there's always something new and exciting to, uh, to stumble upon. Um, and so like we finally come to the culmination of the session and he comes and I realize the best thing about this sweater fetish is he has just had this huge, amazing, filthy, sexy, satisfying orgasm, and I don't have to clean it up. <laughs> What do you like to do? I get off on people snoring and drooling while they sleep. I had a roommate in college whose girlfriend really got off on ripping out chest hair with duct tape. A lot of people in my graduating class used to use pop rocks to reach climax during oral sex. I was in a relationship with a woman who asked me to piss inside her vagina. I once knew a guy who would get an erection by listening to my heartbeat. So I once knew this guy who would pay women to come to his house and make a face where they filled their cheeks up with air because that turned him on. What do you like to do? So, um, as we're sitting in the recovery room, listening to the 
monitors beep and watching the nurses give refreshments to the other recovery patients, the wife and I decide to do what we do all the time, which is debate on who's the better softball player. Her argument is that she's a left-handed power hitter, she can field anything that's hit to her, and she's better than most of the guys on the co-ed team. My argument is that I'm a championship pitcher, I organize the team, and without me, we wouldn't even play half the games that we're in. As we're doing this debate, and we've decided to start talking about the rest of the summer, we're gonna plan some vacations, we're gonna take the families out, we're gonna do a lot just to enjoy ourselves. As the doctor begins to walk over, we can see that in his eyes, he doesn't share in the joy that we're sharing. He sits down and he looks at me and says, the results of your colonoscopy are that we found a mass on your colon wall. As he hands me the images, he also says that this is one of the largest masses that he's ever seen. He also explains to me that African-American men over the age of 40 are the most likely group to be diagnosed with colon cancer. He tells me that they will send the mass to the lab to get tested, and he wishes me luck, and he'll call me in about a week. Seeing the distant look in my face, my wife rubs me on my shoulder. She leans in, and she says, don't worry, everything will be okay. This woman has been there for me for the past seven years. She's been there for me to encourage me, to inspire me, and to make me a better person. One of the themes at our marriage was she upgraded me. She knows how much I love my kids and my mom. What she doesn't know is that I've treated them like second-class citizens most of my life. Whether it was me going to jail and having my mom bail me out and hire lawyers, whether it was me stealing from my mom, whether it was me disrespecting her and lying to her, or whether it was me being shot when I was somewhere I wasn't supposed to be, which is actually on Risk December 16th, 2016, the Respect episode. Check it out. But in all of that, my mom has been there for me. She's let me in when I was homeless. She's fed me when I was hungry. And she's always said to me, you know, you're, you're going to have to grow up because I'm not always going to be here for you. I know you love me and I love you, but your actions are unbecoming of my son. Or is it my kids who, one of my daughters at the age of four, I hadn't seen her in a couple years. I was so embarrassed that at her fourth birthday, I went to the door, but I couldn't knock. I just left balloons and gifts there. Or maybe my oldest daughter, who didn't even know that she had a father until she was almost four years old, because I've been a selfish man. Or maybe my son, whose mom decided that she was tired of the shit. She was tired of me breaking the hearts of the other kids so she wouldn't allow me to talk to him and break his heart. Fortunately now, I have a great relationship with my mom and my children. We all travel together. 
We have fun together. We go to parties together, wine festivals. We do everything together. A week goes by and I didn't get a call from the doctor, so I immediately called to find out what's going on. The receptionist answers the phone and says the doctor is on vacation for the next two weeks. What the fuck do you mean he's on vacation for two weeks? This is a matter of fucking life and death. I need to know my results. Hearing the anger in my voice, she promised that she would call his assistant and have him contact me within a day with some results. The assistant does contact me the next day and he asks me to come into the office. So immediately, we all know that that's bad news. I go to the office and I see the assistant and I ask him, what are the results of my colonoscopy? And he looks at me and says, well, I don't quite have that, but we'd like to take a stool sample. So why did you call me in here if you don't have the results? Well, sir, the stool sample will tell us if you do have cancer. So I give the stool sample, and he promises me that he'll call me within the next two weeks. As you can all assume, I am dying. And it's extremely tough after having lived my life so selfishly when it comes to my mom and my children to then become everything to them and now I have to tell them that I'm going to not be there again. That I'm going to not be there for my kids when they need me the most. For my mom who's in her 70s, I'm going to leave her. I'm going to die. My wife, it hasn't even been a year yet and unfortunately there's no warranties on husband. There's no lemon law that says that she can cash me in when I die. I apologize. This is extremely tough. Within those two weeks, my wife understands and sees that I'm extremely anxious. I'm snapping at everything that happens. She decides that on our way to one of our softball tournaments, we're going to stop at a beach and just relax, just have a good time, just enjoy one another, just enjoy the scenery. There's something therapeutic about a beach when you get there. Just hearing the waves ripple, listening to the birds chirp, watching the kids run around in the sand and just wondering what's going on with them. We see a few ships passing and we're trying to make plans on having our anniversary on a cruise ship. Granted, I'm sure I'm probably not going to be around, but it's fun to dream. But while we're at the beach, I get a phone call, and it's actually from the medical office. So I answer the call, and I hear, hi, sir, this is your doctor, and I apologize for being away, but I want to share some news with you. Are you alone? I can be alone. Well, the results of your stool sample came back negative. You do not have cancer in the stool. Now when we talk about the mass that you had on your colon wall, I want to remind you that detecting cancer early gives you a great rate of survival. A lot of people live with cancer, live long productive lives with cancer. 
But you, sir, do not have cancer in your mass. You do not have cancer in your mass. I am cancer free. I run across the beach and run to my wife and yell, I am cancer free. She gives me a high five. We start making plans to swim to that fucking cruise ship because we're going to take our fucking anniversary vacation right now. Instead, we decide to go ahead and head on to our softball tournament. Now, I can sit here and give you the standard line of live your life to the fullest. Live every day like it's your last day. But I'm going to tell you exactly what you want to know. After that softball tournament, we figured out that she is the better player. But she made me the better man. I love you. Turn a lifestyle into a paradise Living on the beach and eating fish every day And sipping from the fruit from the juice that she made And she love me now Why wouldn't she Love my baby and my baby love me Love me now Because I'm young and able Well love me cause what I bring will to the table And she on the top and I'm well on the low Will I take her anywhere that she will wanna go But let me know if I cross the line I say, taking it slow is just a waste of our time And she love me now Why wouldn't she Love my baby and my baby love me And she love me now Because I'm young and able She love me cause what I bring her to the table This is Risk This is Current Swell behind me now And we just heard from Calco I have to tell you that that night in Washington, D.C., Calco worded a certain something in the a particular sentence in the middle of the story. He was talking in the present tense during the story, saying, and now I'm dying. You know, that's what he felt was happening at that point in the story. But his wife was in the audience, and she assumed he was taking that moment on stage to be revealing that now he knew that he really was dying. I mean, he basically almost gave his wife a heart attack (laughs) the night of that show in D.C. So just to be super clear, Calco is not dying. And you can find him on Twitter at CSCoatsJr72. Before Calco, we heard a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr, and by you. A lot of you fans sent in little recordings of your own fetishes and kinks or people you know about who have unusual fetishes or kinks, and uh, that was super fun. Part of me wonders if there will be more uh, in the Easter egg at the end of the show. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from Ellen Aquario, who you can find at ellenaquario.com. That's A-C-U-A-R-I-O. And Ellen shared this remarkable story the last time that Risk was in Seattle. Here she is now with a story we call How I Met My Mother. 
am a comic. I just want you guys to remember that after my story. <laughs> just, uh, just look me up, buy some tickets. A <clears throat> um, couple weeks ago, I was walking out to get a cup of coffee, and I saw this mother and daughter walking together. The daughter was probably about 12 years old, and she just reached over and put her arm around her mother's waist. When the mother felt that touch, she instinctively just rested her head on her daughter's and pulled her in closer. They continued to walk without missing a beat, nestled in each other's arms, sharing a cup of bubble tea, walking so effortlessly. I thought, wow, that's beautiful. And that's something I've never experienced with my own mother. For the longest time, it's all I ever wanted, just to feel close to her. The problem was that my mother seemed to just really hate me. <laughs> I know kids say that sometimes when they butt their heads with their parents, but for me it wasn't that. It was always constant. Whenever my mother looked at me, there was such coldness in her eyes. Sometimes the look was so piercing, it would send needles of panic through my whole body. The alarms would go off in my head, what's wrong, what have I done wrong, something's wrong. And I would get to this sick pit of my stomach feeling when I realized that something wrong was actually just me. When the movie Joy Luck Club came out, we watched that as a family. And I remember thinking, well, there you go. <laughs> Mothers and daughters are complicated. This is an Asian thing. But at age 12, my mother caught me watching TV when I wasn't supposed to, before I got my chores done. She was so mad. She grabbed me by the hair and threw me onto every wall of the house. The throbbing pain from my scalp through my whole body, I felt dizzy. I wished I could have just passed out, but I didn't. So my mom made me get up. She grabbed a rolled up sock from the laundry basket that I was supposed to have put away, and she shoved it in my mouth and dragged me once more in front of the television set. And she said, if you love TV so much, you should just sit there and watch it all day. So there I sat for hours, unable to move, with my face pushed up against the screen, gurgling in my tears. I thought, I don't think this is an Asian thing. <laughs> Certainly no joy or luck in this situation. What was so wrong with me that my mom hated me so much? Sometimes just the sound of my laughter could set her off. She'd be filled with rage that she just had to let out and she slapped me across the face like it was a reflex. 
And as I got older, the beatings just got worse and more frequent. While all this was happening, my father just pretended it wasn't. He would just lock himself in his room, close his eyes, and shut out the world. Sometimes he would pray. I found it ironic that he believed in prayers, that he believed that someone up above could hear him, his holy father. <laughs> When as my father, he refused to hear me just outside his door, crying for help. I found out in college that my mom was actually my stepmom. I was a child from my father's first failed marriage. For old school Koreans, that's baggage. So my parents thought it'd be best to just keep it a secret until my mom exploded. She couldn't take it anymore. She said, you don't know how good you've had it. If it wasn't for me, you would have been stranded in Korea with no one. It's because of me. Because I took you in, you have a home here in America. When this bombshell fell on my face, I buckled on the knees. And I actually apologized to her. Forever making her feel bad. Because I knew that I was a daughter she never asked for or desired. And it's true. She still gave me a home. A home where I often fantasize about killing myself, but still a home. What would I be without a home? So I tried for years to make our relationship work, to show her appreciation in the way she liked, expensive gifts, dinners out, shopping trips. Whatever she wanted, I tried. But it was never enough. Three years ago, uh, things started to get really strained because it wasn't something I could sustain. She was giving me silent treatments left and right. During one of those silent treatments, I was making a trip to California. I made plans to see my uncle. She found out and called me furious. How dare you try to see my brother, my blood, when I'm not speaking to you? Without me, you don't get him. That was the first and the last time I hung up the phone on my mother. We haven't spoken since. It took me years to realize that no matter what I did, it was never going to be enough. Because I was not enough for her. And at age 35, two years ago, I went to Korea to find the woman who gave birth to me. All I had was this tattered piece of paper 
uh, remnant from my dad's divorce proceedings. He said, I guess you should go find her. This is all you need. Just take that to a police station and you should be able to find her. Of course, my dad was wrong, as he is about a lot of things. When I got there, nobody wanted to help. I spent four days at this one police station just being a nuisance. See, at one point, Korea was the biggest exporter of unwanted children. So adoptees coming back and looking for birth parents is nothing new. Finally, someone told me, you know, <laughs> we just can't find your mom because she hasn't even registered anywhere. She's gone off grid. Even if we wanted to help, we can't help you. I felt the walls closing in. My trip was nearing its end. And I knew that if I didn't find her then, I would never find her. So I blurted out this little piece of information I had overheard. One of the staff had said that my mom was one of four children. So I said, she has siblings. She has siblings. Maybe you could just call one of these siblings, see if uh, they know me. See if they know where she is. See if she's ever looked for me. And I broke down, sobbing, like a child in front of these strangers. Finally, a detective felt compelled. He said, I can make some calls. Don't get your hopes up, though. Before I could comprehend what was fully happening, he's telling me, they know you. And they know where your mother is. They're going to come here tomorrow, meet you at this police station. All of a sudden, everything was moving so fast, so rapidly, I could barely catch my breath. But it hadn't, you know? It had taken 35 years for me to get to this point where I could see my mother's face, one that I could never imagine because I didn't know where to begin. The moment came where she walked through the doors. It was so surreal. I once said a No Doubt concert that I went to was surreal. <laughs> I really misused the word. <laughs> surreal is time stopping and you standing there but you're floating out of your body, looking down at the impending situation, going, what is this gonna be for you? Are you going to be okay? I guess without realizing, I had hoped she would feel familiar, that when I saw her right away, I would know that that was my mother, that I would find ease, comfort, in knowing that I was someone to somebody and not a nothing. But it wasn't like that at all. 
She was a complete stranger. Nothing about her felt familiar. She could have been someone that I passed at the grocery store without a second glance. We had to be introduced formally. Mother, here's your daughter. Daughter, here's your mother. We moved to each other so awkwardly, and we found our embrace. We started crying our hearts out, these guttural, body-heaving cries. We drowned in our tears for all that we had lost and for something we could never be. A mother and daughter walking effortlessly together, nestled in each other's arms while sharing a drink. Because that is a bond that takes presence and nurture. And she was never there. After I left Korea, I uh, tried to keep in touch with her, but I just couldn't. She was so far away, physically, but in every other way. I think I can say that I've had terrible luck in mothers. But they did make me think really hard of what kind of mother I would be one day. I am a mother of two beautiful boys. And the mother I am is one that has chosen to see my children clearly for what they are. Gifts, not baggage. Precious gifts that need to be handled with care love and presence. Although I've had terrible luck in mothers, I found tremendous joy in the mother in me. Thank you. shelter all that you have given to me is never on my behalf all this all and more I see to you swear away in fealty as a sail for warmer climes I am aching you can't deny my kingdom What's this camaraderie of country Tongues before me salty Rust on fragile parts All this, all you have inspired The cruel ship of empire 
Rigging masts and spars, boxes, stripes and stars. I am a king. You can't deny me my kingdom. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Aaron McKeown behind me now, and we just heard from Ellen Aquario. You can always find information about where Risk is appearing live next at risk-show.com slash tour. And don't forget to pitch us your stories. All you have to do is go to risk-show.com slash submissions and there's a page that has video and audio and all sorts of other helpful tips on how to pitch us a story and all of our storytelling training is at the storystudio.org all sorts of ways you can learn about storytelling or bring storytelling into your corporate workplace that's all at the storystudio.org folks Today's the day. Take a risk. My ex-boyfriend always wanted me to go down on him while he was on the phone with his mom. Junior! Is someone slurping your gherkin? Dang-nabbit, son! That girlfriend of yours could suck the chrome off a trailer hitch! What do you like to do?